Morning, Church. Uh, won't you please turn to Luke chapter 1? We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And it's on page 722 in your Bibles. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will, have, will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of God. Yeah, well, if you're with us for the first time this morning, you're very welcome indeed. There's perhaps two things to say before we look at the text and look at the message a little bit more closely. One is, um, if you want to find out about life at St. Barnabas, Alice has recently overhauled the notice boards by the uh, coffee table next door, so do make sure you go and have a look at that. It'll give you a little insight into what happens here at St. Barnabas. And then, again, for those of you who are new, uh, we're in a series thinking about what Christians believe. Uh, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and this morning we've come to the little phrase which says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So that's, uh, that's where we're going this morning. Uh, before we go any further, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Well, gracious God, we, we thank you that through the Lord Jesus you have made it possible for us to come boldly to you as our Heavenly Father. And we ask that as we are reminded what Christians believe, that you would speak to us, that you would rebuke us as we need it, challenge us as we need it, and teach us as we need it. And please make this a very special time for everybody here this morning, through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Um, Alice in Wonderland is one of the most popular children's books of all time. It tells the story of a young girl who falls through a rabbit hole and uh, she finds herself in a fantasy world. And uh, there's a place in the story where Alice finds herself talking to a lady called the Queen of Hearts. And Alice says to her, I just can't believe what you're telling me. And the Queen replies, well, try again. Take a deep breath, shut your eyes. And uh, Alice says, it's no use. I just can't believe impossible things. And uh, the Queen says to her, well, when I was your age, I always did that for half an hour every day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Now, I start with that because there are Christians today who take a similar view of the virgin birth. Uh, as far as they're concerned, it's, it's a myth uh, from a time when people were less sophisticated and who found it easier than we do to believe impossible things. Uh, these, these Christians are fine with the rest of the Apostles' Creed, but the statement that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, well, it's too much. Uh, they don't accept it. The question is, what can you and I say to help them? Well, in almost every case, the problem starts when you take that line from the creed out of its biblical framework. Uh, to do that is rather like finding a bicycle chain if you've never seen a bicycle. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I mean, if you think about it, uh, a bicycle chain is a very strange object, isn't it? I mean, what's it for? Uh, is it a weapon? Uh, is it a rather uncomfortable piece of jewellery? Now, to understand a bicycle chain, you've got to see it in its proper context. And that's how it is, friends, with the virgin birth. Uh, if you take it in isolation, uh, you might decide, well, you know, yup, it's a spectacular miracle, but that's all that it really is. Or you might decide it's logically and scientifically absurd. And if that's the case, well, believing it for you would be almost impossible, rather like trying to believe six impossible things before breakfast. Uh, and in the same way, in order to understand the virgin birth, we need to see how it fits into the whole Bible story. And when we do that, we find that miraculous births play an essential role in God's plan. Now, why do I say that? If you are with us last year, you remember we saw that the Bible story from the beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, is all about God's plan to fix our broken world. And you may remember that it all begins, doesn't it, with God making a promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, so God is going to make this husband and wife team into a great nation, and he's going to fix our broken, messed up world through their children. That's the promise. 
But there's a problem. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are already very old. Uh, They can't conceive. And uh, the doctors have told them they can't have kids. But you see, they've been chosen by God. And God has made this wonderful, wonderful promise to bless all nations through their offspring. Now, when Sarah hears that at the time, she she laughs. And I guess we can understand that. Twenty-five years later, Sarah falls pregnant. By that time, Sarah is 90. Abraham is 100. She has a baby boy. They call him Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. And that's because in her old age, Sarah, she can't even believe her own body. But it's true. She has quite literally given birth to the promise. So God's rescue plan for the world begins with a miraculous birth. The next great turning point in Israel's history comes with Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Now, although uh, Moses' birth isn't a miraculous birth, as an infant, he has a miraculous escape from death. You know the story. Uh, The people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt, and Pharaoh... Uh, has a plan to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. But Moses is placed in a little basket and he's cast adrift, isn't he, on the Nile, a crocodile-infested river. Shortly afterwards, that little basket is spotted by an Egyptian princess and she adopts the baby boy and then she appoints the baby's biological mother, without knowing that's what she is, to be his Nurse, And it all turns out that that astonishing rescue is God's plan to smuggle Moses right into the center of Egyptian power. And it's essential preparation for the greater miracle when God, through Moses, will deliver Israel from captivity in Egypt. Press the fast-forward button a little bit. And now Israel are in the promised land and God raises up people called judges to lead his people. The greatest of the judges is, can anybody tell me? Samson. And Samson's story begins with another miraculous birth. You can read about that in Judges chapter 13. Samson's mother is barren. She can't have babies, but an angel tells her that she will give birth to a saviour who's going to rescue God's people from their enemies. And in due time, she, she gives birth to Samson. And very interesting this, if you read the story, Samson achieves his greatest victory over the enemies of God's people by sacrificing his life on their behalf. And it all started with another miraculous birth. After the judges, we come to the period of the prophets and the kings, and that period all starts with a lady called Hannah. Hannah is overcome with sadness because she can't have children, but she prays. God hears her prayer, 
and Hannah becomes miraculously pregnant. Her son Samuel goes on to become a prophet and he anoints the first kings of Israel, Saul, David. And of course with Samuel, the the long line of Israel's prophets begins. And then lastly on this little Old Testament uh, whistle-stop tour, we come to the prophet Isaiah. And 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So Isaiah predicts the virgin birth of Jesus 700 years before it happened. That prediction, by the way, is so shocking that many scholars today uh, who can't accept supernatural things, they want to mess about with the text. They say this didn't happen, it couldn't possibly happen. So they want to change the word translated virgin into a word that means young woman. But uh, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, about 250 years before Jesus, they deliberately chose the Greek word for virgin because that's what the Hebrew word means. It does not mean young woman. And very significantly, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he quoted that passage in Isaiah and he said that Isaiah was talking all about the virgin birth of Jesus. So have you got the pattern? God's plan for our broken world is to bring blessing to all nations through the descendants of Abraham. And if you think about it, if ever the Hebrew women ceased to have children, well, God's promise would have failed. The whole world would be lost. We would have no hope. But you see, God's plan, God's plan, brothers and sisters, is unstoppable. So whenever a woman in the line of promise was barren, God stepped in and he gave them a miracle child. And throughout scripture, pregnancy and childbirth are actually the means by which God's promise is fulfilled. Every newborn child is a reminder of the promise. And that, of course, is why in Israel uh, every male child was marked by circumcision. Uh, It was a little reminder, wasn't it, that his body didn't just belong to him. It's actually part of a much bigger story. Now, friends, against that Old Testament background, you and I should not be surprised to find Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, entering the world by means of a miraculous pregnancy. The story is told in two places in the New Testament. It's told in Matthew, and as you heard from our reading, it's told in Luke. Interestingly, in Luke's Luke's Gospel, the uh, first character we meet is another faithful Jewish woman who can't have kids. Uh, Her name is Elizabeth, and uh, like Samson's mother, Elizabeth is visited by an angel who promises that she's going to bear a child. Her child will be John the Baptist. 
And when she becomes pregnant, we heard in our reading that an angel then goes to visit her cousin Mary and tells her that she too will miraculously conceive and her child will be the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. And very wonderfully, amazingly, Mary responds with simple trust and joy. So, putting all that together, when we confess in the creed that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, you know, we're not mumbling a theological myth. And it's not a random, one-off miracle. No, it's a reminder that our faith has got extremely deep roots in the whole Bible story. The coming of the Saviour wasn't a new tactic. It was the climax of God's loving faithfulness to his promise to heal our broken world. And what that means is that, friends, God's story is not about powerful people or human ingenuity or empires. It's about the promise of God and the simple trust of God's people. And you and I should actually be amazed when we realize that the turning point in human history comes when a woman who appears to be totally insignificant in the eyes of the world, Mary, responds in joy to God's promise and then brings that promise into the world in her own body. That should amaze us. The uh, American TV host Larry King once said that of all the people he wished he could have interviewed, Jesus was top of the list. And uh, he said that if he had the opportunity, the question he most wanted to ask would have been, were you really born of a virgin? And uh, when Larry King was asked why that question was so important, he replied, well, if Jesus was born to a virgin, everything changes. Now, that's absolutely right. So let's just think together for a couple of moments. What difference, what difference does it make to our lives that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary? What difference does it make? Two things in particular. First, it means that Jesus is uniquely qualified to restore our relationship with Almighty God. Now, I know that most of you already know that. But this morning, I want to approach that idea from a slightly different angle, an angle you might not be quite so familiar with. There's a place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Now, Paul is saying Jesus is our mediator. Now, what does that mean? Well, imagine for a moment uh, two people uh, who enjoy a close relationship. Let's call them John and Jackie. Somewhere along the way, their relationship breaks down over some kind of misunderstanding. doesn't matter what it was. John is convinced it's Jackie's fault. 
Uh, Jackie is convinced that John is in the wrong, and each of them are so convinced that they're right that they refuse to speak to one another anymore. Now, all of us can relate to that. Uh, If we haven't been in that situation ourselves, we certainly know people who have. How can a situation like that be resolved? How can John and Jackie be reconciled? Answer, they need a mediator. Now, here's the question. What qualifies a person to be an effective mediator in a situation like that? Well, an effective mediator has to be somebody that both John and Jackie respect. That's the first thing, isn't it? It's got to be someone that they're both willing to listen to. That's important. It's also important that the mediator is impartial. An effective mediator can't be biased in favor of one of the two parties. Now, let's suppose that they find a mediator who fits those qualifications. Let's call him James. John, Jackie, James. In order to mediate effectively, James has got to be able to represent John to Jackie and to represent Jackie to John. And that means, of course, that James has got to be close enough to both of them to represent them faithfully. And at the same time, he must be sufficiently different from them in order to be impartial. Now take that illustration, think about Jesus. That Jesus was born to Mary means that he's human like us. He can relate to us. That means that he can represent us to God. But if Jesus is only human and no more, there's a problem because he shares our need for redemption. He also needs to be saved. He certainly can't redeem us. Uh, he, He would actually in that situation be part of the problem. Couldn't be the solution and therefore couldn't be our mediator. So if he's going to be our redeemer and our mediator, there's got to be some essential difference between Jesus and the rest of us. And that's what the creed is reminding us of. It reminds us of what Luke says in chapter 1 of his gospel, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that no human father was involved Mary gave birth to Jesus as a virgin. Now, cast your mind back to last week. Do you remember last week we said that Jesus is the forever Son of God? He's always been the Son of God. We said that his life didn't begin when he was born to Mary. That was simply the moment when the Son of God entered our world. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, Luke tells us, very interesting in the text, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit hovered over or overshadowed Mary, implanting the life of God in her womb. 
Very interesting this. When Luke says the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary, he deliberately uses the same word that we find in the very first chapter of the Bible. I wonder if you've ever spotted this. Because in the account of creation, Genesis chapter 1, we're told that in the beginning, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And Genesis goes on to show us that the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos and over the darkness brought order into our world. And Luke very deliberately chooses exactly the same word to describe the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary. And you see, Luke is telling us that Mary's child is going to be the start of a new creation, and he's going to bring order out of the chaos and the darkness in our world. So the virgin birth means that Jesus not only represents us to God, Jesus represents God to us. So he is uniquely and perfectly qualified to be the mediator between God and humanity. Now, that is only going to mean something to you this morning if you've ever come to the point of realizing that from the moment of your birth, you and God were not on speaking terms. I wonder if you've ever realized that. The relationship between you and God was broken from birth. Most people don't seem to know that. Uh, Looking back on the days when I used to work in business, I knew plenty of successful, sophisticated, well-educated business people who assumed that things were absolutely fine between them and God because of their achievements or because other people thought highly of them. It never actually crossed their minds for one moment that they needed someone to mediate between them and God. But the plain fact of the matter is, dear friends, that without a mediator, without somebody who's qualified to represent God to you and you to God, well, there's no hope for any of us. The Catholic Church believes Mary can do that job for us. But we don't believe that. And the reason we don't believe it is because in Luke chapter 1, Mary calls God her saviour. In other words, Mary knew she needed a saviour. She knew that she's a sinner just like the rest of us. Of course, we respect Mary. Uh, We respect her for plenty of reasons. Her trust in God, her response to God's word, her her unique role in bringing Jesus to birth. We don't worship Mary. We don't pray to Mary. We're not trusting Mary for salvation. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That means he is our perfect mediator. And Paul in 1 Timothy goes on to explain that Jesus' mediation is spectacularly successful because he gave himself 
as a ransom for all men. Meaning, of course, that his death on our behalf deals with sin. That's that's our problem. and deals with it permanently. And that means that we are on speaking terms again with God. God speaks to us by his spirit through his word. And we speak to God in prayer. And when we do, he hears us because Jesus is our mediator. So, The virgin birth, first of all, means that Jesus is uniquely qualified to restore our relationship with God. But secondly, the virgin birth means that when we go through hard times, God is able to sympathize with us. I wonder wonder if we appreciate how very wonderful that is. You probably know it intellectually. But you see, all of us go through hard times, don't we? Some of you might be going through hard times this morning, I don't know. And you might be feeling very low. And when the suffering really, really bites, we can be tempted to stop believing, to pull back from God. And that temptation can sometimes be very, very hard to resist, can't it? I'm sure you know that as well as I do. But you see, because of the virgin birth, because God became man, he knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in that way. Especially when it's what it's like to be tempted to stop believing. God knows, can you believe this? God knows that's what what that is like. So, So when we pray in those times when we're feeling really, really, really low, We don't have to explain why we're feeling like that to God because he's been there before us. He already knows it. He's experienced it firsthand. I don't know about you, but I find it enormously comforting that God knows and understands my struggles. Because it means that I can come to him with whatever I might be dealing with. I can be totally open about it. I don't have to sort of dress it up to pretend that things are better than they really are. Now this is very wonderful. Just just let me try and press this home so you you understand it a bit more deeply. Suppose, Suppose somebody comes to you and says he's going through a really, really difficult time Uh, His dad died recently, and he feels totally lost. Now, you're a compassionate person, and naturally, you want to help. But your father is still alive. So what do you do? Well, you try to think yourself into your friend's situation. You try to imagine what it must be like to lose your father. And uh, you respond accordingly. Now, that is a very useful gift to have. It's it's, it's what we call empathy. It's a wonderful gift to have in the life of a local church. But now take that situation and think about it slightly differently. Suppose your own dad died recently. If that were the case, immediately you can relate to your friend in a deeper way because you've got a shared common experience, haven't you? You can say to him, I know just how you feel. Can you see how much more helpful 
that makes you to your friend. He's going to find it easier to talk to you. He's going to feel that you really do understand him. Now, that is not empathy. That is sympathy. Because your care for your friend is based on a shared experience. Well, the virgin birth means that when you are battling and you're tempted to stop believing, God doesn't simply empathize with you. He doesn't try and think himself into your situation. He sympathizes with you because he's been through it before you. It's a wonderfully, wonderfully comforting truth. As we close, I want us to see how the early Christians understood and applied this truth to their own circumstances. So won't you flick ahead in your Bible, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Let's wait till we're all there. Are we all there? Yeah. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. For we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, can I ask you, when was the last time you approached the throne of grace with confidence? Don't misunderstand that question. I'm not asking when did you last have a quiet time. That's not the question. I'm saying think back to the last time when you were really battling. You're in a time of real need. We've all been there. Now, in that situation, did you approach the throne of grace with confidence? Believing, as Hebrews says, that God would provide the mercy and grace you needed to come through that situation upright as a Christian. Because, you see, if we are Christians, that is our privilege. So you and I, when we gather together like this, we should be encouraging one another to make the very best possible use of that wonderful privilege. And I can't think of a better thought for us to be taking into our monthly prayer meeting than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the virgin birth of Jesus is the turning point in human history, bringing the healing power of heaven into our broken world. We thank you that Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and man. 
who has restored our relationship with you forever. That he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's opened the way for us to approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Father, please help us to exercise this tremendous privilege joyfully, reverently, regularly, and thankfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.